Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tierney ou le grand pot pour éliminer Furlon. Qu'est-ce qu'il lui a fait là Qu'est-ce qu'il lui fait qu'il y a un Tierney c'est quoi C'est quoi ça Il vient souhaiter une très bonne année aux supporters d'Arsenal Kéran Tierney, quel rush Magnifique 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 Kéran Tierney Kéran Tierney Magnifique This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, uh, good Sunday morning to you. Good Sunday morning to you, too. That's how they say it in church, right? Uh, Good Sunday morning to you. Good Sunday morning. I mean, look, I think this is the first time that we have ever recorded an Arscast Extra on a Sunday morning. And I, I kind of feel like we need some Sunday morning church vibes, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. A bit like, in the name of the Arson, and the Danielson, and the Holy God, Nacho Manrell. Amen. Let us pray for a successful transfer window. Please be seated. How about that? Amen, Amen to that. Andrew. Amen to that. Amen to that. I love that. It, was, it took me back. You know, yeah, the old days when I used to have to go to church on a Sunday, and then I was made go to church on a Sunday, but I'd sort of not go. Mm. You're you're to go to mass, okay? I'll go, and then you just walk around. And, I really, no one was accompanying you, making sure you went. No, I mean, you get to a certain point where you know that's not that's no longer a thing that you're into. Well, certainly for me, anyway. You know, um, Ireland being a quite Catholic country, as you know. I've heard that. Yeah. I've heard that. So, yeah, it was one of those things where, like, I was told to go to Mass, but it's not like my folks were going to Mass. Right. At the same time, right. I was like, you should go. Well, why don't you go? Well, I'm, I'm busy. Well, I'm also busy. No, you're still a child. You go to Mass, and you're a teenager, and you're going, I'm not going, I'm not going to Mass. It's terrible. I remember once when I was, when I was very small, um, when we lived in England, my, uh, we came over for a visit to stay with my, my, my uncle, my dad's mm. brother, and my mm. big cousin, Garode, uh, was, was told to take me to Mass. He had to go to Mass, and he had to take me to Mass. So off we went, the pair of us. I was maybe six or seven, something like that. Mm-hmm. We went off on the bus down to the church. We walked into the church right up to the top. We sat down. 
we got up again and we walked straight back out so he could say quite convincingly that, did you go to church? Did you take him to church? Yes, I did. And then we went and played football and got ice cream and stuff like that. It's one of my happiest childhood memories, that. (laughs) Had that been a a 21st century memory, you would even have been able to take a selfie in the church to be like, here is visible proof we attend. Yeah, yeah. Back then, no such thing as selfies. came back with a communion wafer. Look! I was there. I kept it uh, under my tongue the whole time, so it didn't melt. Yeah, 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 exactly. How's it going with you this morning? It's good, thanks, man. All very well. Mm-hmm. I, th- I felt like yesterday was probably the most enjoyable day of Euro 2020 that I've, from my perspective, anyway. Okay. I, I had a very uh, light Euro 2020 day yesterday. I've been sort of all consumed with it, I guess, watching most of the games. Right. But yesterday, I didn't see a great deal of France and Hungary. I, I had to do some stuff, as you sometimes do on a Saturday. So I had to do that stuff. I was sort of in and out, keeping an eye on things. I saw Griezmann's equaliser, and I saw the dude smash up the table, which was quite... Yeah, that was good fun. <laughs> Yeah. That's quite something. Yeah, um, I enjoyed that. I, I don't know how the woman behind the table quite felt about it, but she seemed to be all right with it. it that was quite a fun game. Good crowd. Mm. You know, the underdogs took the lead. Um, France missed a bunch of chances. But Portugal, Germany was a real humdinger, you know, 4-2. Yeah. Some great goals in that game. Yeah, I, I, re- I really like the fourth goal, um, Gosen's header. It's mm. really aesthetically pleasing goal, isn't it? The way that he jumps and kind of does this, he makes like a letter C of himself in yeah. order to sort of plant the ball into the top corner or into the top of the net. I mean, I like a thumping header, as you know, but his body shape and the way the ball hit the back of the net, I think in terms of aesthetically pleasing goals, it's up there with the Locatelli goal from the other night for me. Um, I, I enjoyed yeah. that. It was good. It was a good game, wasn't it? It was, and... You know, we're seeing a lot in this tournament of teams playing with uh, ostensibly five at the back or mm. three at the back. And that Germany execution of that system was really impressive. I mean, Gosen's playing as a wing-back was brilliant, had another goal disallowed and was yeah. just a constant threat on that side. Mm. Um, and to be fair, you know, the goal that Portugal scored to take the lead was a brilliant counter-attacking goal as well. Uh, Ronaldo scored it. I mean, yeah. the speed of him. The speed yeah. of him to to um, to get up the pitch that quickly. I think it was his header as well, wasn't it? That the uh, uh, it was a corner and he cleared the header and then ended up scoring. I mean, did you did you see the stat about the goals that he scored since he's reached thirty? <laughs> no. Right. So under the I age know of it'll 30, be something ludicrous, but yeah, under the age of thirty, Ronaldo has scored fifty-two goals in one hundred and eighteen games for Portugal, mm. and. This can't be right for Portugal, is it? Yeah, it said, well, this is what the stat says. Over 30, 55 goals in 59 games. Wow. That's ridiculous. It is kind of incredible. But has he he made 170 appearances for Portugal? That seems a lot, doesn't it? That feels like a lot. Feels like a lot. I'll check it out while we're we're talking. It, It is kind of extraordinary the way in which he has transformed himself and that he continues to kind of defy mm. age and time. Uh, but that 70-yard sprint to score that first goal was mm. quite something. Have you managed to decipher if that stat is vaguely correct yet? Uh, uh, yeah, 176 appearances for Portugal. That's ridiculous. That's a lot of appearances. That is ridiculous, particularly like he never ever did the like the Ryan Giggs thing. I know... Um, 
you know, clubs like to protect their players from international appearances and stuff like that. But 176 was, caps. I mean, that speaks to his injury record as well. I guess he, you know, he he, he started playing for them around 17, 18. Mm. And hasn't missed major tournaments. Portugal tend to go quite far in tournaments. He's played in a couple of finals. Um, but yeah, quite amazing. And I think he's now two away from... Uh, beating or at least matching Ali Dyer's all-time international goal-scoring record. He's 106 um, goals. Yeah, I think 108 is Ali Dyer. But yeah, Ridiculous. genuinely quite extraordinary and um, a bit of a freak of a player, to be honest. Yeah, I, I hated him when he was at Man U, but I, on reflection, am quite glad we only had to deal with the Man U iteration of the player. <laughs> like, he was exceptional for his final year or so at United. But before that, he was, you know, a young player, a bit flaky, had good moments and bad. Uh, I'm mightily glad the thir- the over 30 version of Ronaldo mm. never turned up on these shores. He seemed to have quite a lot of good moments against us, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so, he did. Know, yeah. Champions League semi-final. I, s- I still bear a grudge, don't worry. Good. Few. I was worried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Spain were held by Poland. Uh, mm. I actually didn't see as much of that one, but bits and pieces. Yeah. I didn't see really any of that at all, other than to, you know, watch the highlights, just seek out the bits. So, um, I'm Morata- fascinated by Alvaro Morata, I have to say. He's a very curious footballer. Uh he is, isn't he, in the sense that he has cost a fortune in transfer fees. And, and by that metric alone, I know you can't really uh, draw too many parallels between the amount that a player costs in transfer fees and his value. But generally speaking, it, it, his, his value doesn't seem to diminish, despite the fact that evidence is mounting that, you know, he's, he's a bit not very good. Yeah, well, he's part of very successful teams, mm. I guess. But... You know, he's always been at big clubs, always been involved with the Spain national team. Not a clinical finisher, though. Um, mm. I know he got the goal yesterday, but he missed a couple of other very good opportunities. And Spain probably should have won it. They had a penalty, which Moreno stepped up. And then Morata yeah. somehow put it wide from the rebound. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Spain, you never quite know what you're going to get from them. And they've not really started this tournament particularly well. Is that two draws? Two had? draws, yeah. yeah. So they're only two points from their two games. Now, I mean, it's I think very there's... hard to go out of this competition, though. Yeah, it is, because there are worse teams and this third place. What is it? Four third place teams go through? Something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, look, it is... It is um, it is an interesting aspect to Spain, isn't it? That the technical quality and everything is so high, but they have problems scoring goals. They really do. Yeah, and centre forward, it feels like it's always been a bit of a problem with them. Ever since Raul, I guess, you know, there's not been... Or, or, Fernando Torres, Torres yeah. Yeah. But since that, they haven't... Torres and Villa. Okay. All right, we've remembered Okay, three. Torres and Villa. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know, they had the kind of Diego Costa experiment, which didn't really necessarily work. Um, I still think center forward is a bit of a problem for them. But, you know, they've got a lot of other talented players, and I think they'll go through. We are now into the knockout phase proper, really, because it's the final round of the group stages starting today. Yeah, so... so teams are going to start going out. Yeah, yeah, Switzerland and Turkey playing today, Italy and Wales playing today, which could be good, could be a good game, that one, because Italy have been very good so far, and they've kind of been good against teams which 
maybe aren't at the upper echelons, and with all due respect to Wales, as good as they were against Turkey, they might find Italy, you know, hard going. Um, mm. uh, but I do wonder about the Switzerland-Turkey game, whether like this, you know, that both of those teams have not been great in this tournament, but sometimes two poor teams can create a good match, you know, something born out of their their flaws or what have you can can provide us with, with entertainment. So if you were plumping for one of those to watch today, which one is it going to be? Well, TV on I, one, if I had, the, choice, the, other. Yeah, if I had the choice, I would choose Italy-Wales because, mm. you know, I still have a bit of a soft spot for Wales. I think Aaron Ramsey's yeah. presence there is a big part of that. But I will be at my Turkish father-in-law's place watching oh. Turkey desperately try to reclaim some pride Ooh, in this tournament. Right. Um, he has been none too impressed with their performances thus far. Is he so, a is he a passionate football fan? Mm, no, he is not. Karate is his discipline. Um he is a he is a he's like a high level karate coach. When do they a have a terrifying yeah. thing to have <laughs> as a father in law. <laughs> when do they have the World Cup of Karate? Well, actually, it's funny you should ask that. Cobra Kai. Um, the, the, the karate is in a sport in the Olympics this mm. summer for the oh, first yeah. time. I really? Believe. Oh, I suppose, what do they have? Judo? Yeah, I don't know. But um, this is my understanding. And so his story is quite interesting because he was the Team GB karate coach on a two-year contract going into the 2020 Olympics. Uh-huh. But... When of coronavirus course. happened, his, the tournament was put back. His contract elapsed. I think he was on quite a well-paid contract, so they didn't renew it. So now he is coaching the Jamaican hopeful for the karate Olympics. This sounds so it's like a on, sort of hang on. It's like cool running. I was going to say <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like a movie. Yeah, a Turkish sensei and his Jamaican protege. Going all the to way take to the, the karate world by storm. Oh yeah. my god! I mean, I hope you've got like final draft out, and you've already got some of the <laughs> some of the screenplay written for this. It is it is the cool runnings follow up. Nobody knew that they needed. Wow. Um, so yeah, and, and inevitably, if they make it, I think the qualification is still ongoing. There'll be a clash with Team GB. He'll be up against his former protege. I mean, it's going to be a great movie. Oh my god, that mm. is going to be. Oh, I, I had literally no interest whatsoever in Olympic karate until now. Sure. All until my now. family. Until <laughs> it all starts unspilling. But it is genuinely an amazing story. He was a guy who, he would, he did karate for the Turkish national team in his youth, but then he emigrated to this country. Sure. And he worked as a kebab man. Mm, he had a kebab that's van. right. I remember at your wedding, yeah. didn't you know? You had a kebab yeah, we van. had the kebab van at the wedding. Brilliant. And he served kebabs uh, for 25 years, pretty much every night. And that was his full-time thing, supporting his family. And then in his retirement, he's really been able to swing back into the karate. And who knows, maybe Olympics beckon. Oh, what a fucking story. What a story. It's it's here. Remember where you heard this first, people, because this yeah. is this is going to be the story of the Olympics. I'm sure of it. I can feel it in my bones. <laughs> <laughs> Celebrating with a Donna kebab on the podium. Oh. Feels inevitable. I and would a Jamaican really, patty. Mm, I would really like a kebab now. You've got I me know. hungry for kebabs. They're delicious, yeah. Mm. He swears they're very healthy. But I know that to be factually incorrect. Well, I mean, there's vegetables. 
Yeah, there's vegetables. There's vegetables are, 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 are you know they're healthy and like there's there's surely some kind of sauce maybe that's made from I don't know a mayonnaise type type base. Yeah. You know there's that's protein. eggs. That's there's eggs. protein in there for sure. Mm-hmm. And look, um, there is no healthier meat than slices of stuff dripping onto <laughs> other slices of stuff to form a great condensed. I don't know what you call it. What would you call it? A, a sort of um, dome? Like a, no, not yeah. a dome, but like a, I don't know, a great big thigh of compressed meat. That sounds- It is like a thigh. Mm. I, I described myself recently as having thighs like doner kebabs, and they, they do sort of rub against each other as I run. So, yeah, that's an unpleasant <laughs> image. But it is like someone scraping a slice of meat off my thigh and serving it to Well, there you go. I'm slightly what less... What could be more delicious, Adam? I'm slightly less... Um, into the idea of a kebab right yeah, now. Just thank me. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, what about England versus Scotland, James? Uh, what about that? Do you know, I was very excited for that match. I they was. They kept saying it was once in a generation, even though it's literally the second time it's happened in the Euros in my lifetime. Well, but, I mean, that's a long... I mean, there's a good long gap between... True. You know, I don't know, what, a, I don't know what that means. Once in a generation, I guess that's not once in a lifetime, is it? No, it's no. Like once generation, every- yeah. What's what's a generation? What's the span of a generation? Is it eight years, ten years? Like, how do you decide what's the next years. generation? Yeah, I guess about ten years. But anyway, I was uh, full of hope for that game, and I think it was kind of entertaining as a sort of. Um, spectacle more than a game you know hang on one sec i just googled how long is a generation and i'm being told 30 years that seems how many generations that seems three or four generations in a hundred years so maybe 20 years like is it the 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 span of an adult life you know what i mean from zero to 18 and then your parents are the generation above you aren't they so I but guess it, you need to find what's the sort of median age. Well, it depends on the age of your parents. If your parents yeah. have you when they're 30, you know, maybe they are the generation above you. But what if your parents don't have you until they're like 50 or some sh- 46 or something like that? That's a few generations. Imagine the carnage if we just got everyone together, let's say in the UK and Ireland, mm. and we're like separate into generations. There would be a lot of mm. rowing and uncertainty. Yeah. I think we should do it. Oh, I don't know. What do you think it should be? I don't know. 25 years. That seems a bit much. I reckon 20 years. So like the 18 from zero to adulthood, 18, and then an extra couple of years in case you in case you need them. You know what I mean? Let's say yeah. you get, you're in a coma for a couple of years. Okay. For no okay. particular reason, just in case you've got a bit of catching up to do. So just to give people that leeway, you know, in case of coma. So that settled. Yeah. The reason I was excited for England Scotland Sorry, was yeah, because back on track. Sorry. <laughs> I have great memories, of course, of 1996. I remember watching that game. And obviously, David Seaman's penalty save from mm. Gary McAllister, which That's was a right. huge moment. Paul Gascoigne, of course, the iconic goal and the dentist chair celebration. Mm. And I feel a bit regretful that this match kind of won't have one of those iconic moments to recall it by you know it felt like a Mm. real opportunity missed to make some memories and I think a lot of that is on England and the way they approach the game do you have credit Scotland no 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 I thought Scotland were very good you know I think there was a 
I think most people would accept there is a, a quality gap in terms of some of the individuals within the squads, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Scotland's chances of getting something, something from the game had to be based on the collective. Whereas I do think there was maybe from an England perspective a little bit too much focus on some of the individuals who are expected Mm. to just turn up and do it. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, it's not going well. Bring on Jack Grealish. He can be the savior. Harry Kane, you know, he's rubbish. Well, you know, I thought he was really poor on the night. But, you know, it was like, well, why isn't Harry Kane doing it? Why isn't Raheem Sterling doing it? Um, And it isn't to say that there weren't people and their opinions about how the team was set up, you know? The idea of two defensive midfield players or holding midfield players in in Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice. Did you need the two of those? Could you have sacrificed one of those with half an hour to go, for example, and bring on a Jadon Sancho? And uh, I think it's a really interesting discussion or a really interesting conversation to have about the way perhaps relatively inexperienced managers behave or view the game. And I think in some ways, I'm not bringing it around to Mikel Arteta, but I do think there are some parallels in the sense that, can you understand why Southgate, who is a relatively inexperienced manager, I know he had uh, has had a good few years at England now, and I know that he had some club management experience as well, but still relatively young, etc., etc. Like they, they... they sort of defer or or revert to something that is relatively safe, relatively conservative, because they don't want to lose the game. Mm. Whereas, you know, perhaps part of the joy of football is being brave, taking risks. And, and you run the risk then of saying, well, why did you do that? That was foolish. You know, why did you go hell for leather and you got caught in the break, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder if there is, you know, more and more scope within the game within this highly structured game that we experience nowadays for people to to maybe just be a little braver at times and and to see that bravery rewarded yeah did you see the quotes from tiago alcantara in the week i did i mean i I thought it was a really good interview we had a question on the discord actually uh, about this uh where is it from it comes from AFC Met, who says, what do you make of Thiago Alcantara's comments about hating modern football because there is less magic in the game nowadays? And it's not not quite what he said. I think he was really interesting on how the game has developed and, you know, mm. the more, you know, the players who, what did he say? Something along the lines of players who have, oh, I think I've got it here. Those of us who are not so fast with our legs have to be faster in our heads. And then he said, it's like anything in life, adaptation. Things keep moving. Football changes constantly expressed differently. And he talks about maybe the change in, in the way that you approach things. Like when he was going to training, when he was just starting, you'd sit and have a chat. And then five minutes before you put your boots on, you go out. And now he's saying players, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes before they're in the gym preparing mobility, strength work, things evolve. We didn't do that because no one explained it to us. So I thought that, I thought it was a really interesting interview. I'll put the link of it in the the show notes. It's with Sid mm. Lowe in the Guardian. Um, it's a great interview. Yeah. It really is. Um, but what, what did you make of it? Because I thought there was something really quite interesting in him, sort of being a bit wistful for the the magic, as he called it, the players who who could do something improvisational, who could, you know, who whose game wasn't based around physicality and athleticism and being able to run from box to box for 90 minutes etc etc i think Mm. 
there is something to that in the way that the game is now being analyzed, structured, statistics, all of those things which feed into this kind of more, what's the word? Is it mechanical yeah, approach to the game rather than... a word for it. I think physicality is a really big part of it. And obviously, it all stems from people looking to find competitive advantage in different areas. So something like physique and fitness is being explored in much greater depth by everybody than it ever was. And in a curious way, that kind of ends up levelling the playing field. It becomes a sort of arms race to kind of have the right technology, the right insight. And I think consequently, you're also seeing the level of coaching improve. Mm. I mean, if you think back to the 1990s, I mean, these guys who are managers in that era absolutely could coach, but I don't think there was the same degree of specificity of, Mm. okay, I'm going to have a set pieces guy. I'm going to have a defensive guy. I'm going to drill these guys using video, virtual reality, like we discussed the other week, whatever it might be required. I, I do think the game, and particularly through the pandemic, felt very... Um, kind of stayed and almost overcoached in a way. And and yeah, maybe that is a little bit, to bring it back to Southgate mm. and maybe to bring it back to Mikel Arteta, that can be the tendency of the young, inexperienced coach to kind of keep the handbrake on. Yeah. Um, there was a really interesting uh, discussion on, on Irish television after the game, uh, the Portugal-Germany right. game. And they were talking about a moment when Ronaldo... He, the ball, he flicked the ball up in the air. He stuck his hands out as if he was going to catch it and then backheeled it to mm-hmm. one of his teammates. Yeah. That's like, a bit showboaty or whatever. But uh, Richie Sadlier was the one of the pundits and Didi Haman was the other pundit who thought it was disrespectful of Ronaldo to do that, you know? Um, and sadly, I was going, well, look, this is, this is, this is like a glorious piece of improvisational skill, a bit of magic in the game. You know, Hammond was saying, well, this will have done nothing other than to like wind up the German player. So what's the point in doing it? But I thought it was quite interesting to hear people view that one thing in different ways. Like, I think if he did that and then backheeled it to, you know, Thomas Muller, okay. You know, that's maybe a bit silly, but to have pulled off something, I feel feel quite um, uh, filthy, you know, talking about Ronaldo (laughs) like this. But you know what I mean? It is moments like that and, and skills like that and players doing things which aren't quantifiable by metrics like mm. what what's the x back heel of whatever that is the xbh you know there is no metric for what ronaldo did there and mm. i think there is a danger that some of the things which make football the most exciting interesting sport one that has you know kept all of us captivated for however long we've been alive you know what i mean yeah. we are in danger of losing some of that because of the rigidity of of the instruction and and everything else. So I, you know, bring along, bring on the Mavericks, I say. Yeah. And and that's, I think where the sort of Gascoigne Grealish thing becomes quite interesting Mm. because, you know, Gascoigne did produce and obviously against Scotland, a very famous instance, but did produce those kinds of moments and was maybe not uh, the ideal model professional, putting Mm. it lightly. Grealish, of course, is not on the kind of Gascoigne scale in that respect. Um, And I don't think any modern footballer really can be, to Mm. be honest with you. But nonetheless, he does have kind of a 
mixed reputation in the game as someone who kind of enjoys a l- the lifestyle a bit, very gifted. There's no indication that he doesn't apply himself, but maybe he's not quite um, as big on the sort of discipline as some of the other players in the England setup. Mm. And it does feel a little bit like Southgate is a bit cautious to kind of embrace his talent. Um, it, it is it is an interesting thing, and I and I I can't tell. I'm trying to sort of be wary of just sort of romanticising the past. Do you know what I mean? No, uh, I, yeah, I know what you mean. But I, I think there is something to it. I do think that ultimately, you know, what I started out saying, lamenting the lack of sort of moments in the England-Scotland game. If someone asked me, you know, it's now, how how many years on from 96? Uh, 25 mm-hmm. years? I could tell you several moments straight away. If you asked me in two years about this England-Scotland game, I won't remember anything. No, probably. that's true. That's true, and, yeah. Yeah, that just feels a bit of a shame. But yeah. maybe that's just down to things not quite coming off on the day. When full, Phil Foden pulled a ball out of the sky in the first half, he was flagged offside in the end, but I thought we might get mm. something there, but alas. Why do you think he doesn't want to use someone like Jaden Sancho? That's a strange one. Do you I mean, do you think the the... Look, Southgate obviously has staff who've watched him. Do you think the distance plays a part like would Jaden Sancho if for example he were playing for an English club Manchester United we know are interested in him if he was playing for Manchester United and he'd come into the Euros on the back of a 16 goal 20 assist season or whatever the hell it is one or the other one way uh, around or the other it's a sensational amount of output in any one season it seems unfeasible to me that he would be left out of the squad do you know yeah, what I mean? He's putting up those numbers in the Premier League. I think he's probably playing the game. And look, Southgate has got a lot of good players in that part of the pitch. Um, you know, Bukai Saka didn't even make the bench for the Scotland game. Mm. Um, but I do find that one curious. Raphael Honigstein, I know, is pretty flabbergasted by it. As someone who's seen quite a lot of Sancho and seen a fair bit of England, he cannot understand mm. it. Um, this is a player who's been talked about as a hundred million pound player, you know. Yeah, uh, and and I think, you know, Raheem Sterling is an interesting one where he's he's not really. I know he scored actually in the last game, but his all round game, I don't think is quite where it has been going into previous tournaments. I think his starting berth is debatable. Um, so I think. I mean, to be honest, you can even get Sancho in, move Mason Mount into sort of a deeper central midfield role and mm. discard one of the more defensive midfielders you've already got in there. There's plenty of ways you could come at it, um, but it is it is a strange one. Yeah. It is strange. And it's it's a shame because I, I really, as I said last week, I really like Gareth Southgate as a guy and I sort of feel like every part of the job he he does pretty well in, especially away from the pitch. You know, he's a pretty mm. good ambassador, pretty good spokesperson. But ultimately, it is a results business. And if if England, you know, they'll get out the group, I'm sure. Yep. But if they sort of underwhelm in the tournament, then that's not going to look good for him because he has got probably the best set of young English players for quite some time. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, the the sort of certainly in the midfield attacking end of the pitch, it is yeah. it is as good as I can remember for a long, long time uh, for England. Nice to see Kieran Tierney uh, out on the pitch for Scotland and to play mm. as well as he did. Uh, yeah, 
I felt kind of enjoyed that. Yeah, I I did too. I was like, oh yeah, I like this. I like, I just liked seeing him out there and, um, you know, maybe that's part, we've spoken about this on the podcast before and over the last couple of weeks, you know, the lack of Arsenal involvement in the Euros. So it was nice to be able to sort of live vicariously a little through Kieran Tierney, um, on that. And of course, uh, there appears to be some good news about his, his future in that there's a, a new five year contract in the offing and, practically done and dusted as far as we know yeah £110,000 a week roughly uh, according to David Ornstein thoroughly deserved Mm. really I mean he's been excellent since he came in Um, when he's been available he's been fantastic and I think he you know in a squad where it'd be quite easy to make your peace with quite a lot of players going he Mm. is one of those few names that you're like we've really got to build around him going forward Oh, for sure. I mean, he's got to be a, a fundamental building block in what what comes next, you know. And people are talking about him as a as a future captain and all that kind of stuff, which I think is which I think is absolutely spot on. You know, when you look at some of the players that are in the squad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, he really does stand out as as captain material, doesn't he? Definitely, uh, and he's kind of you know, one of the more experienced younger players. Mm. I mean, he came into the Celtic team so young. I think he was playing at 17, 18. You know, he he arrived at Arsenal with plenty of football already under his belt and he's an experienced international too. Um, I'm sure he'll be Arsenal captain one day. It feels kind of inevitable, Mm. to be honest. I think he'd probably be the next in line, really, if Aubameyang was not around. Um, I know we do have players like Lacazette, but if you're looking at someone who can actually lead the team through the next mm. five years, um, Tierney's got to be that guy. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, anything else for this particular part of the the podcast? Uh, Is there anything else from the Euros we need to mention? Um, just trying to think. Not really. I mean, I think we covered most of it off, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, There's not a great deal of Arsenal news happening. It's been a very quiet week, which, of course, has just got to be, you know, uh, calm before the storm material, isn't it, James? Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? it? (laughs) Well, I think it's tricky, isn't it? Now the Euros is underway Mm. and in full swing. I don't know how much that impedes things. I mean, one thing to bear in mind is that sometimes that affects the reporting of things. You know, a a journalist at a national newspaper has probably got his hands full following Croatia or something like that. Mm. So... um, you know, that might affect why you're seeing less Arsenal news around. Because I, I know they are still working in the background, but I don't think we're on the the cusp or anything in particular. But we'll, yeah. I'm sure we'll have questions about that in, in part uh, I'm two. I'm sure we will. OK, right. We will take a break here for a uh, Sunday morning cuppa and maybe a, a little biscuit. And uh, we'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook, no, Discord chat server, which you get access to. If you, <laughs> sorry. Um, on the Arsenal Face, no, no, no face, no nothing. Uh, Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. If you want to sign up, we'd be very grateful. Patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. Do you want to go first or will I go first? How would you like um, oh, I'll go first. Okay. That's right with you. Yeah. Sort of picking up where we left off, really. Michael Massey says, considering how people have said there's a lot of work to do this summer, should we be concerned that not even one piece of business, buys or sales, has been completed yet? With our tough start, surely we can't be waiting until the last few days to get business done. Um... I don't think so yet. I don't think we should be that concerned yet. Um, I don't think there's been a lot done by anybody anywhere, you know? I think that's true. So the market is a kind of thing which starts to move, not on its own accord, but things happen and then other things happen and, you know, dominoes fall and all that kind of stuff. I I fully accept that the sooner we get stuff done, the better, obviously, the more we can, uh, the sooner we get our incoming deals done, the better, because you want players in and settled and preseason and all that kind of stuff for all the reasons we all know. And um, similarly, you don't want to be sitting towards the end of the window with a load of players that you don't want because your chances of getting what you want for them or even moving them on at all become slimmer, you know? So there is a a time uh, aspect to all of this, but right now on June the, whatever it is, 20th, I'm not that worried just yet. Are you? No, I don't think so. I'm trying to think what business has been done. I mean, obviously, Buendia went to Aston Villa. Mm. Um, Liverpool completed the Canate deal, which they had kind of lined up before the end of the season anyway. Mm. Uh, But beyond that, I don't see too many big signings in the Premier League. I'm happy to stand corrected if I'm wrong about that. Mm. So I'm not overly concerned. We know Arsenal... It's not Arsenal's fault that no one will accept their bids... If everyone would just accept any of our bids, whatever the price, <laughs> yeah, then things would certainly speed up. Exactly. If Brighton weren't so cur- curmudgeonly about the vast amount of money we've offered them for Ben White. Yeah. If Anderlecht, you know... Yeah, come on, Anderlecht, what are you doing? What are you haggling over a few million euros for, Ander- Anderlecht? Anderlecht us buy this guy for what we want to pay for him. Come on. Exactly. They're the teams we should be angry at. Yeah. Um... I want to see us mass tweeting Brighton saying, just accept the bid, you you na- naughty club. Do it. Um, or else. <laughs> or else. Yeah. We'll give that 40 million to somebody else. <laughs> Someone who actually wants it. Um, 
yeah, so I, I'm not overly concerned at this point. Uh, but I, I take the point. There mm-hmm. is so much to do. And I think uh, I think it's fair to say Arsenal wanted to have something done early in this mm. window because they're conscious that they had such a big list. Um, and the fact they haven't is frustrating. But it's really hard with transfer windows, isn't it? You can kind of only really judge it when you've seen the full mm. picture, when you know yeah. what they've accomplished, what they've spent, what they've got back. You know, we're kind of all reacting to each story as it breaks, but it really is beneficial to try and see a bigger picture, but it's impossible. You no, know, of course life it doesn't work like that. Yeah, because like every story, every rumour that comes out, we immediately take it, run with it, extrapolate what it means for the signing itself, other players in the squad, blah, blah, blah. And I do think, yeah, you're right. Obviously, the only time or the time when we can properly judge the transfer window is when it closes. And then the season will tell us whether or not the transfer window has been a good one. Because I think we said this the other week, didn't we? We could do a load of deals that, as fans, we might hate you know, but if if, if they bring about results next season and we're sitting pretty, then you you would have to say, okay, I've got to I've got to reconsider that. So look, mm. and uh, was it the 2019 window that we? I think as a fan base, generally it was quite popular. Yeah, um, the end of it the anyway was pretty disastrous. Yeah, um, mm. I mean, I know it ended in FA Cup, but from a Premier League perspective, yeah, yeah, very yeah. difficult season. So yeah, uh, of course. Listen, you, you can only <laughs> you can only just judge the proof is in the pudding, etc. Mm. Here's one from Mo, who's at Naz. Get down uh, underscore Tradamus seventy nine, and he says Man City have signed three youngsters from South America this summer so far. Surely, with Edu and the fact that we only have South American scouts left. Mm. We should be doing the same. Really interesting question. And I think it is something that's going to be uh, an important part of Arsenal's recruitment going forward. It'd be very foolish if not, because as the question makes clear, we've retained a couple of South American scouts. As we all know, they are now adding scouts in Mm. other areas of the world, including Britain at this point. But we've still got our original team in South Africa. South Africa? No. South America. Scouts in South Africa. South America. And um, Edu, again, has links there. The work permit regulations are the primary thing that make this more plausible. Yeah. The the degree to which they have changed. And now essentially, you know, because it's more difficult to get a European talent over, you kind of weigh a European talent almost the same as a South American. You know, if, if you're looking at a French 17, 18 year old and a South American 17, 18 year old, your chances of getting one over are about the same as the other. And the likelihood is that South America is going to be cheaper given the state of the market. So I hope it will be part of Arsenal's recruitment plans. Mm. Um, Not least because it's quite fun having South Americans. And we also, I feel like Arsenal is a club in England with a particular, I mean, I know Chelsea and Man City have had it to an extent, Middlesbrough maybe, but we have had a bit of an affinity with Brazil. We've had a few Brazilians down the years and they've generally done okay. Um, Mm. Some notable exceptions. Yeah, I mean, I saw, I read an article during the week, I can't remember where it was, but, you know, somebody basically saying, 
yeah, this is this is the market that we are going to have to exploit. Um, yeah, I'm a firm believer in that. I think that's true. I, it, I, it's it's Brazil. As, as far as I'm aware, it's Brazil, Argentina, and Chile that are that qualify most easily for mm. the kind of new work permit regulations. Those domestic leagues. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know to be honest enough about the divisions to say how much talent there is there, but it's such a kind of hotspot for talent that I imagine there's there's plenty. Do you think? I mean, look, here's me being uh, Johnny Glass half full, right? Yeah. And a lot of players have been linked with Arsenal, but it seems a lot of those stories are external, if you like, that the information isn't necessarily coming from within Arsenal. Mm. Is it possible that, you know, some of our transfer targets are on the other side of the Atlantic, therefore they're not necessarily quite in the media spotlight the way they would be if it was over here, if you know what I mean? So maybe it's easier to keep things a bit quiet. Look, it's quite possible that there's fucking nothing going on in South America as well. But but maybe if we are looking for players over there, it's it's a little bit easier for for things to fly under the radar a little bit. Well, I definitely think that's true in that, you know, nobody in this country reported Arsenal being interested in Pablo Marie before Brazilian outlets started saying, you know, Flamengo have had a bid. Mm. Um, I do think that obviously the connections in that part of the world are with that that those media and therefore they'll get to stuff first my understanding and i think it is borne out in the stories that we're seeing and the bids that we're seeing go in is that there is a bit of a focus on players who are experienced Mm. uh, in, in the premier league potentially and also maybe if not the premier league then then in europe um coming into the team this year but that south america will be growing focus in the years to come Mm. I hope that is the case I think it would be really it feels like a bit of an open goal for a club with a South American sporting director to not be looking to do that Mm. Uh, and with the connections Edu has having worked in the role he did with the Brazil uh, FA and with Corinthians it does seem kind of crazy if we're not I suppose the biggest question for me is do we still have the drawing power you know, when we, if you think about the clubs we might be competing with in that market, mm. um, but I mean, isn't, isn't football etc. Yeah, isn't that the challenge though? Part of the challenge um, is being able to sell whatever project this is that they're working on. And like, let me just throw a hypothetical out there: there's a young South American right back that mm-hmm. we're interested in. You know, we can get him. It's relatively cheap from a transfer perspective. I think there is a fairly large disparity between uh, wages uh, in South American football and and the Premier League. So that in itself would be uh, a reasonable way of attracting a player and convincing them to join um, by saying, look, we want you to be part of this. We want to pay you this much money. And, you know, ultimately you can be uh, somebody who can um, lead us back into the promised land of Europe or the Champions League or whatever, you know, so... It feels like, I know that's like setting up this kind of ideal scenario, like, well, why can't we do this? It sounds easy when I say it, but it does feel like something they should be exploring. Not that we'll ever know, I guess, but, you know, those kind of deals, they don't feel 
too unrealistic, particularly in a summer where we are being linked with someone like James Madison, which does feel um, objectively unrealistic in the circumstances we find ourselves in, you know, financially, reputationally, stature-wise, where we finished, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, I mean, the Madison one is interesting. I'd be very surprised if Arsenal sign James Madison. Um, mm. I just think in a summer where they have so much to do, I suspect the kind of fee that Leicester would command for Madison and the kind of outlay it would require is almost prohibitive. Mm. Um, what do you think about that one? Again, you know, we had a discussion about this on the, the Arsecast on Friday with Lewis and, like, as a signing, it would be pretty exciting. He's a creative player. We need mm-hmm. that. But, like, it is a massive amount of money and, and I'm torn between the uh, the idea of, well, fuck, if they do it, that's... Um, they're going for it. You know what I mean? Spend some fucking money and we want to see ambition and we want to, you know, bring in top talent, et cetera, et cetera. And the other part of me which thinks, well, if you are going to spend $70 million or whatever it might be on James Madison, like, what can you get for that? What could, what else could you get for that? You know, so I'm sort of in the middle of the two. It does feel, unless there's like a really big problem between him and Brendan Rodgers, which there have been some rumours about, but I'm not sure to what extent that's true. Um, unless he absolutely wants out... I don't know. I mean, I also feel like if we're trying to catch Leicester, mm. is giving them £70 million pounds to, sm- to spend really smartly not, a, yeah. a good idea? Not the way they, it's not a good idea the way they Do you know what I mean? It, no. That is something that occurred to players for that. Well, exactly. <laughs> and like maybe our challenge is to sort of think about that £70 million and say, okay, Madison would be a really good player for Arsenal, but, but can, we, can we do it smartly in a way which that £70 million improves the squad but also um allows us to sign players of a certain profile whereby that money could um grow into other money if we're going to sell players on at some point you know what i mean yeah i think i think madison would would move by the way mm. i think that um my sense is that for the player you know, the opportunity, as well as Leicester are doing, to go to a kind of big six club, a London club, potentially, I think. In inverted commas, big appeal. six club, James. <laughs> um, would have an appeal for him. And I think I think he would sort of come straight into the Arsenal first team, you know. Of course, um, whereas, yeah. You know, I, I think he would... I think he'd stroll into it, frankly. So, I, and I think he'd be on more money too. So, I think for him there would actually be quite a strong appeal. I just, mm. I'm dubious as to kind of the extent of Arsenal's interest in that deal, um, yeah. and also feasibility, like you say. I mean, Mike, the question I keep thinking about is: Should Arsenal be spending fifty million pound on anybody? As exciting as it is to think that the club might be in a position to do that. And as much as I admit, I get caught up in it and I think, oh, go on then, go and do it. Press the button, let's go for it. I do have this nagging feeling of like, is that the right way? Or would we be better served hedging our bets a little more, at kind of the slightly lower end of the market, you know, following a, a more Leicester-ish mm. model? 
at this point in our trajectory. Yeah, I mean, look, another thing that we said on the, the podcast on Friday is that, like, well, £50 million now seems like a lot, but if you spend £50 million on Ben White and he's your centre-half for mm. seven, eight seasons, £50 million is, is yep. nothing. You know what I mean? Correct. So it's about the value that you can extract from the transfer fee on the player that you're spending on. I get it. Like, if we're spending £50 million and we have a really limited budget, then it doesn't make a lot of sense. If £50 million is prohibitive to us doing other stuff that we really need to do, it doesn't make any sense. But if £50 yeah. million is something that they think they can spend on top of whatever else they need to do to get the the squad in the shape it needs to be, then I don't really have a problem with it in that, um, you know, you do have to you do have to sometimes spend for the future as well. And, uh, you know, what, what, what seems like an expensive fee at some point, if you get good value out of the player, it doesn't feel like that at all. You know what I mean? Mm, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's to do with that. I, I, I do get it. But here's an, an interesting question from uh, ICU Kappen. ICU Kappen. Yeah. Anyway, he is, he's at Ortega JE on Twitter. He says, with the player loyalty and offense we take to players moving on in their prime, are we prepared for buying players of a younger profile just uh, uh, thus opening ourselves up to moving them on at a higher price point. So the idea that you bring in a player at a young age, he develops, and then you fucking rinse some other club for for the money uh, that his transfer fee merits at that point. You know what I mean? The way Dortmund, for example, have done it yeah. on, on countless occasions with certain players. You know, do you get wedded to... Uh, the emotional or the emotional connection that you have with a player sometimes I think makes us believe, well, we need to hang on to them. We don't want to let go, particularly at a young age. Yeah. And I think it's actually setting aside signings for a moment. I think it's particularly true with regards to academy players, right? You know, I think we feel Mm. that emotional connection and, don't want to cash in on them, but then you look at the Alex Awobi deal and that's probably one of the smartest things Arsenal have done um, in, years. in the last few years. Yeah. yeah. And it is an interesting one. I do think that it's it's also a bit of a hangover from feeling like, well, we are a big club. We are the top dogs. You know, Chelsea are parked on our lawn firing £50 notes at us for Thierry Henry and Patrick Vieira. Mm. We're going to hold that off and resist it. Uh, I think that kind of mentality is still there. So maybe we are a bit reticent to mm. um, engage with that. But I, I think it will be probably quite an important part of our journey. I mean, I won't make any friends for saying this. Uh-oh. 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 But I think it's very possible that in the next five years, somebody comes and offers us an absurd amount of money for Bukayo Saka. I, I think that's entirely plausible that Manchester City, say, in two seasons' time, are like, here's £100 million. We want Bukayo Saka. Mm. And I think that setting aside the emotion, the right thing for Arsenal to do when that day comes will probably be to sell. Well, that depends. Yeah, go on. Well, I was going to say because it will, you know, fund the next phase Mm. of the team. Um, it does depend on various things, yeah. but 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 what I mean is that is an unpalatable thought 
to Arsenal fans. And I completely understand why. But I do think that probably if you're thinking about it purely strategically, purely analytically, you probably have to make your peace with the idea that sometimes your darlings, if if the money is so good that you can't turn it down, and maybe 100 million was a bad figure to pick mm. in that respect, you probably are going to have to take it at some stage. Yeah, no, I, I see exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, I think a lot depends on where we are. Um, yeah. You know, if we're in a good place... Maybe if we're one player away yeah, from but maybe, making it. Yeah, but if we're, yeah, if we're still treading water, there's going to be no question that if Saka keeps developing at the rate he's developing he will want to play for a team that can compete for the best trophies in the game. Yeah, he's right? going to be a Champions League and we, player, we've isn't he? Been here be- we have been here before with certain players. I mean, I think I think Cesc Fabregas is a perfect example of that as well. That a player who whose talent absolutely demands playing for a team which is competitive at the highest level wasn't in an Arsenal team that was at that level. Therefore, his departure, whatever you, whatever you think about the way it went or how it transpired or anything like that, was pretty much inevitable. Mm-hmm. And that was because of us. And it was obviously because he's such a, a brilliant player. And I think you're right to, you know, to, to say that about Saka. I think we, we probably are going to, uh, or we should certainly think about selling players before we do we've been too slow to sell players in the past where we hang on to things and we kind of think well you know we think about selling the worst possible players in the team and i understand that completely but sometimes selling somebody who is reasonably useful might bring you in the kind of fee that could get you two players who are also reasonably useful or or maybe there's an upgrade there you know what i mean yeah i mean i heard clive say something on the arsenal vision podcast i think it was clive and he said, if you sell a player and there are arguments about it among the fans, then you're probably selling them at the right time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe <laughs> Because so, yeah. it's kind of when, before consensus has been reached that they're not good enough. You know, we could all turn around in January last year and say, ah, oh, we should sell Mustafi. But it was at a point where he had no value. Yeah. If you had sold him at a time when he'd had a few good months in the team, people would have said, well, he can't do that. He's playing well. You know, but there would have been a market. Mm. And and I think as supporters, we'll if, if the club does things right, we may have to accept decisions that make us uncomfortable. I mean, Joe Willock might be the big example of that. That's this true, year. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think it will be a popular decision if they sell Joe Willock, but it doesn't mean it won't be the right one. Yeah, I mean, that's a classic example of it, all right, where I feel, even as you say it, I feel uncomfortable with the idea of of maybe not giving him the chance, you know, mm-hmm. because as a, a Hayland graduate, as a, a guy who's grown up at Arsenal, there is that romantic idea of him just flourishing into this amazing player at Arsenal. Completely. And he might... And nobody would buy yeah, into that more than me. Exactly. But at the same time, is that completely realistic? If there's a big money offer, are we foolish not to take it? I see both sides of it. I'm, I'm quite quite torn on it in some ways you know but yeah I think it is a a great example of it sometimes they come back to bite you but you know would it not be better for example um, to sell a Joe Willock for 30 million pounds now 
and him to go on and be a really good player somewhere and have regrets about it, but have 30 million rather than the four or five million we got for Serge Gnabry, for example. Well, yeah, I mean... And I know those circumstances were really different. It's not... It's comparing apples and oranges a little bit, but there is some, you know, depending on what you do with the Willock money, it might not be that big a regret. No, absolutely. And, And lots of teams have players who leave and achieve things elsewhere mm. you know you think of Chelsea Lukaku and De Bruyne have done alright you know they're examples but mm. <clears throat> things happen in player development but I agree with your point more generally um, about selling at the right time it'll be I mean the Willock one is a really fascinating case study isn't it but the yeah. original question was about kind of weighing it was about the emotional attachment we have versus the kind of rational approach and I think that is something we're going to have to to wrestle with maybe starting this summer yeah and I think part of it comes because players wanted to leave so we feel betrayed by the player exactly you know what I mean whereas on, if on it, this note go on yeah. Way, yeah what did you make of Aston Villa's uh, cheeky Emil Smith-Rowe bid I, I really didn't uh, have any problem with it you know I saw the, the stuff where people are saying well they're trolling us and all that kind of crack I mean I saw w- exactly where they were coming from chancing their arm um you know, offering £25 million for a player who's got 20 Premier League appearances, who's 20 years of age. Probably offering to double his money, you would think. Yeah, maybe yeah. so. Maybe so. Uh, why not? I think it, it it just sort of puts a little bit in perspective where we are. With, you know, mm. with, with... Vulnerable. Yeah, vulnerable. And also, you know, we do have to think about what's around us and not just what's above us as a football club, you know? Where, yeah. where, 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 you know, the way they say pigs can't look up, you know, the, yeah. so we're a pig with its head on backwards that is only looking up Would that, would yeah. that work? No, was, I don't know what way a pig's eyes would be if you turned his head backwards, <laughs> but we are a backwards headed pig looking upwards all the time. And we're not paying enough attention sometimes to what's happening around us. Teams like, like Leicester are a good example, as we, we've mentioned more than once, Aston Villa you know, who look to be uh, increasingly smart and ambitious in the transfer market. So we have to pay attention to that. We've also got to pay attention to the to the fact that Smith Rowe's got two years left on his deal. We've got to get that contract sorted. I think we absolutely do. So I'm not sure that we need, as a football club, a, a wake-up call, but um, and I'm glad Arsenal reject, uh, rejected the bid, obviously, but, you know... I think as fans, we feel vulnerable because of where we are and what it means for our best players, you know, because like if we finish eighth again next season, Saka has a good season, Smithrow has a good season, you, it becomes increasingly difficult to hang on to them. Yeah, and we've fallen into the trap in the past of believing that because a player comes through with us, you know, that's the only place he's yeah. going to ever want to play. Um, it just it. doesn't work like that. No. Um, and... I think that's a great point. You know, we're so fixated on the top four, the idea of the big six as well. Mm. Maybe we don't spend enough time as a club looking at our probably a more realistic contemporaries in terms of sort of, you know, Leicester, Villa, the clubs who are gaining ground on us. Everton are spending big money, fortunately not spending it quite as smartly as some of the others. Um, there are probably more that I'm not thinking of and there probably will be more as more investment mm. comes into the league. So... Yeah, it, it's, it is a little bit of a wake-up call in terms of seeing 
a club saying, well, look, yeah. we've got the financial muscle and the ambition to to put this offer to you. And yeah. Yeah, we've turned it down. Of course we have to. I mean, I think it, losing Smith Rowe is unconscionable at this point, but it's a... Uh, yeah, it rang an alarm bell, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think there were stories um, linking Smith-Rowe with with Real Madrid as part of an Odegaard swap deal and stuff like that. And is it coincidence when a player is in negotiations or in talks or in the process of discussing a new deal with a club where, you know, there's interest from elsewhere uh, to drive, not. you know, agents play the game. We all know that. So, you But know, it's one thing to say... Aston Villa are interested in Emma yeah. Smith Rowe, and it's quite a, you know no contact yet between the clubs, <laughs> and it's quite another to say Arsenal have rejected an offer, yeah, which was a concrete offer as well, yeah. Right? So, so you know that suggests this is more than mm. a conversation. You know, mm. the, clearly the interest was very real. Do you and also go on? Maybe the interest was entertained. I well, mean, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you you know the way these things work? You generally don't tend to get a bid unless there has been look tapping up or whatever you want to call it it's just part and parcel of the way discussions it's happen between it's works. how it works so would you be concerned at all that villa might have had some encouragement to bid uh do you know what a little bit because i can't speak for all clubs and i'm not directly accusing aston villa of doing something illegal but Generally, you wouldn't go to a formal bid stage unless mm. you had reason to believe the deal would be completed. It might not be that you have agreed terms with the player, but you would would at least be in a ballpark, you know, where yeah. you're like, okay, this will get done if we can do this deal. And it would be, it would be a quite unusual for Aston Villa to just drop that bid on Arsenal's doorstep without having had some sort of mm. nod. Um, yeah. But I'm speaking from a position of ignorance. I don't know about that particular case. Okay. Uh, but that is how generally these things go. Okay. Well, look, sort it out, Edu. You know? Yeah, I know it's you've got to get loads. done. I know you've got loads to do this summer. Get all that done, but get this done as well. Or well, else. It, it's one of the most important things. I mean, we've talked about Buendia going to Villa. It looks as if Martin Odegaard is going to be a very, very difficult, probably impossible deal to do. Um Smith Rowe becomes hugely important. At that's, that point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot of people have said, well, look, at least, you know, with the Buendia thing, with the Odegaard thing, like we're not left in a complete hole because we have Smith Rowe. Right? Yeah, it's not quite the case that it was 12 months ago when we just felt that like we didn't have yeah. a creative player we could use. Exactly. But what's happened with the Villa bid has put this way, way, way up the priority list in terms of sorting out that new deal. So I agree. Let's hope they do it. Here's a question from Jensen Armour. Who's at Jensen Armour on uh, Twitter? Is that armour made from the skin of John Jensen? <laughs> <laughs> There's a thought. I sincerely hope so. He says, going off uh, Oba's Instagram stories, he's playing quite a bit of football with his mates slash randoms. Any concerns about getting injured or someone doing him in? Wouldn't be a good look getting injured playing five-a-side during the holidays. I have spotted that. Have you seen little clips of him playing I, football here? I have. I saw one maybe last week or something like that, but um, I don't know how yeah. how frequent they are. No, I'll try and find out. It seems quite sort of a 
ill-advised, doesn't it? But then, it does on the equally, you want it, players yeah. to stay, stay in condition. Are, um, I mean, are there clauses in contracts which prohibit a player from doing certain things? Like, you're not allowed to go hang gliding, right? I As suspect so. Yeah. Like, it wasn't, I would imagine wasn't, insurance. Wasn't there players a, were all insured. Right? Yeah, wasn't there one... For, uh, who was the, the goalkeeper? Carlo Cudicini. Did he not have a bad motorcycle accident, but part of his insurance was that he's not allowed to drive motorcycles? Something like that. There was something like that right. in his contract, I remember. So I guess things which may cause you physical harm, like footballers going skiing or something like that in case they, well, A, ski off the side of a mountain um, and down a cliff, but also, like, are you are you um, it's more knee likely... Injuries, yeah, knee injuries or ankle injuries or those kind of things. You know, are they things that you can't do as a professional footballer, even if you would like to? You know what I mean? So it strikes me that playing five-a-side on a buckety pitch with your mates could be in that kind of ballpark, you know? Yeah, interesting. Well, it wouldn't be the first time that Aubameyang had kind of uh, attracted the club's attention for something he put on social media or something that got out on social media anyway. He was in trouble for the tattoo, I think, um, oh, yeah. last season, which contravened, I think, the lockdown rules. I forget, exactly. Um, so, yeah, wouldn't be the first misdemeanor. But I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you're right. It feels self-evident doesn't it that mm. those clauses would be in the contract or certainly written into the insurance agreements that protect the clubs so yeah i'll have a nose around that yeah but um listen i saw him score a really good goal in like a five-a-side game and i was just like happy <laughs> he looked a bit sharper <laughs> than he did most of the last yeah, season. a bit of finishing practice might stand him in good stead for the new season so. not the worst thing, yeah. yeah um what about this question shane desmond on mm -hmm. twitter with the fixtures released during the week what game do you predict Arsenal fans will collectively lose their shit? And then he says, I predict half-time... At the Brentford, the Brentford game. game. <laughs> Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. Is there a more portentous start to the season than that? Um, yeah, newly promoted team. Friday night lights. I know. Clear eyes, full heart. Can't lose, apparently. Um, David Raya masterclass incoming. Yeah, I mean... It is a tough enough start, isn't it? It is. With like, so we go to Brentford, then we host Chelsea. Then we go to Man City. Then it? we go to Man City, host uh, Norwich and away to Burnley. And then yeah. after that, is that not the first North London derby is the next game? It is game? indeed. It is indeed. Yeah, so it is a pretty tough start. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 you can't help but worry when you're faced with Chelsea and Man City that early in the season. The second time it's happened in a couple of years, isn't it? Where yeah. Unai Emery's... Unai, didn't it? His first couple of games. Yeah, Man City and then Chelsea, uh, where I think we were completely outplayed by Man City and probably should have got something from the Chelsea game, but I think we, I think we lost. But after that, we went on that kind of long, unbeaten run for all its flaws. It was still a, a long, unbeaten run. I'm not quite ready to sort of catastrophize yet, though, James, you know? I just there's too too long left in the summer we've got enough time as and when that happens to to lose our shit and get the pitchforks out and all that kind of stuff um, I don't want to sort of future hurt my heart if you know what I mean <laughs> fair I think uh, uh, also it does feel kind of tough because you know we've 
struggled with Burnley in the past, but really Brentford, Norwich, Burnley in the first five mm. games, those are matches Arsenal should be looking to do all right in. Yeah. And home against Chelsea, our record's not been too bad in the past. You know, we beat them, of course, last season. So Man City away, of course, feels like a real shot in the dark. But mm. the rest of them... Uh, I'm still on the looking forward to side yeah, of things. Listen, Man City away with William Saliba as the false nine is exactly. going to be the, the game that changes everything for Arsenal and, <laughs> and Mikel Arteta. Okay, here's a final one because we've uh, more or less run out of time. Quick thinks at all thoughts, who's at quick thinks underscore 80 says, rumors are swirling. The people want to know. Can you and James confirm whether you were both offered the Tottenham job? And on the Discord, we had one from uh, Alexander who says, What do we make of the Spud's hilarious quest for a new manager? I was hoping they go for Gattuso. It would have been hilarious. And I was hoping that too, because then we could have had the classic Gattuso. Sometimes maybe shit. Sometimes maybe shit. <laughs> sometimes maybe shit. Sometimes, sometimes maybe, maybe shit. shit. Yeah. I think that might be the Spurs badge, crest, um, motto. <laughs> but motto, I think, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it is kind of hilarious, I think. They have kind of gone from target to target. Uh, it looked for all the world like it was going to be Fonseca, which I know a lot of their fans were incredibly underwhelmed by. I think having been linked to Antonio you know, Conte, Conte and yeah. Pochettino. But... Now, I don't know where they go now. I saw, I saw some talk that um, the guy who used to be manager of Barcelona is in the frame, Valverde. Right. So, he's next to turn them down. I mean, have you been offered the job, James? That's the. That's uh, yeah, I, I have. But of course, I've turned turn it down. It down yeah. On principle. Me too. Me too. I said no. We've all, I think most of our listeners probably have by this stage. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, they've brought in this Paratici character from Juventus as technical mm. director. And it all feels a little bit like, you know, previous eras at Spurs when who, they had technical directors. Who they was had, the guy? Well, they had... Um, un, well, they had Jacques Santini as That's the manager. The guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. What's... They had the former Arsenal scout and Liverpool scout... Oh, What's his name? Fuck you. Yeah. Frenchman. Damien Comely. Yeah. As running the club. And and that was kind of, that caused some frictions and problems. Then they had Baldini. That's the guy Baldini? I was thinking of, Baldini, yeah. Yeah. And it didn't work particularly well for them. I think, was he the guy who spent the bail money in spectacular fashion? On yes, eight, he did. Eight he players did. or something, yeah. He was the guy who brought in the likes of Paulinho, Chadley, Soldado, Lamella, Chiriches, Lamella. Um, I mean, I, if he's up for the managerial job, we can get him back involved in the club in any fashion. <laughs> that would be very welcome. I don't think he's really worked since that Spurs spell in 2015. Mm. So yeah, I um, I'd love to see him back involved. But yeah, who knows? I mean, thank God for Tottenham. Anything, anything that happens at Arsenal, they find a way. Um, they simultaneously are forever in our shadow and overshadowing us with their ineptitude. What is that uh, That great tweet from um, Michael Kashani? Something about, yeah. like, my favourite thing about football is no matter what happens with any other team, the joke is always on Spurs. Yeah, 
And it is true. Yeah. It is true. It is. Thank, oh. thank goodness. All right. Well, look, we're going to leave it there. Enjoy your uh, afternoon in the um, soon-to-be Olympic champions uh, household watching the Turkey game. Have fun. I will. I will. Let's hope Turkey pull out a performance. Yeah. Uh, thank you all for being here. I know the schedule is um, a little unusual. It is going to be a little unusual for the next few weeks, isn't it? Like It is, yeah. I'm afraid. I'm filming quite a lot so mm. uh but we will we'll figure it out yeah we'll, we'll muddle through we'll muddle through figure it out as we go along uh, and uh, all the rest but as ever thanks a million for being here hope you enjoyed the show enjoy your sunday and we will catch you on the next one bye-bye Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.